Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. This week we'll be hearing why doctors find the transitional moments in their life difficult. I think there is an increase in people in doctors burning out and stress and also working within an environment that it's still very difficult to come out and actually admit that you're under stress. And how patients are at the centre of the NIHR's funding decisions. Um, it's obvious when researchers have designed a proposal and come and got tokenistic engagement, mm. difficult to even call it engagement, with patients at the end. Um, those applications just are not of the same quality. But first, why reform needs reforming? Earlier this week, I spoke to Professor Sir John Oldham from the Institute of Global Health Innovation at Imperial College London. He has published an analysis article with us explaining why he believes the whole way that we think about reforming needs to change. And he joined me earlier to explain more. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Sir John. My pleasure. So, apparently the NHS has been reformed more times than you've changed your phone. How often is that? Well, uh, if I say that since I came to my practice in Derbyshire in 1983, that there have been 13 organisations nominally in charge of the health care of the population of this town, uh, I'm still around and the hospital is still around. Hmm. It gives you some sense. Yeah, absolutely. Is it a particular problem for the NHS or NHS-type systems anyway, given that uh, you know, the government is so much more closely linked as opposed to you know, some other places where providers are much more separate? I don't think it's so much to do with whether providers are separate or not, but actually what I was trying to indicate in the, in the piece is that we are a politically driven healthcare system, both for good and for ill. Mm. And I've seen politicians drive through some really important changes which have been resisted by uh, professionals. Um, uh, The comment is that within that system you tend to get politicians coming in wanting to change things and then they find that the levers of power have huge pieces of elastic on the end and almost the only thing they uh, um, consign themselves to doing is restructuring. Uh, and uh, instead of what is really the question is not what the structures are, but what they do. Mm. Um, And the second point is that irrespective of that, the basic modus operandi uh, of the healthcare system owes more to its origins about fighting infectious diseases in 1948 than it does to the challenges that face it now, which is a very different set of uh, problems and different set of patients than it had in its, at its origin. Mm. There's a very useful diagram in your uh, analysis which sort of talks about the cycle of a new minister coming in, making changes, leaving and, you know, repeat ad nauseum. Um, and as you say, there's been 13 different uh, bodies nominally in charge of the health in in the time that you've been practicing. Now, each time one of those reforms or a new body comes in, there's new sort of standards, new things that people have to look at um, as they try and do their clinical work. Uh, The the accretion of these um, means that it's impossible to concentrate on any one. So as one of the rapid responses pointed out in your article, could 
learning what to stop when you do a reform, as well as you know deciding what to do, be an important component of this? Well, I'm going to take take those points uh, in in a couple of ways. First is that when you do change organisations as rapidly as we do, then you fracture relationships that have been developing. And when you are wanting working across organisations, which people with multiple mobility need to happen, relationships trump structures each and every time. So that has been the history, um, and this is not a political point, but actually just a factual point, that the recent reforms considerably hemorrhage knowledge from the healthcare system. And like any service industry, the organizational memory is in the brains of the people who work for it. So if you alter that equation, then you alter its efficiency and its effectiveness and productivity. So that's point one. The second point is that we have uh, driven hard to create quality standards, but these are almost inevitably focused around body parts. Now, the problem is that then you are a clinician faced with these multiple quality standards, and it ends up with what uh, um, is referred to as satisficing, which is that you have to accept a less than optimal position within each of the standards. You will never achieve optimum with each Mm. of those standards. So it has to be an amalgam. Of course. So that was the point I'm making. Do we... Uh, not drop things off? Absolutely we don't drop things off. That The history of the healthcare system, and I have to say not just in this country but in other countries, is that uh, there are people who create good things to do but then they don't stop doing other things um, instead. Mm. And I suppose uh, new research that's obviously always coming through and changing practice tends to be very specific and, and focus on the minutiae as well. Precisely so, because if you want to, research is seen in part as a mechanism for advancing your career within whatever particular specialty you want to see. So when NICE come along to do a literature search for uh, exology, uh, then they find there is a bias towards uh, literature which has gone to some lengths in a lot of cases to exclude people with comorbidity. And then you have the volume, which as I indicated is massive worldwide, Mm. Uh, which often contradicts each other, but yet we hook the whole around that sort of research. But that's the whole good. HOLE in research is actually around comorbidities, I was trying to say. So I wasn't saying research is a bad thing to do. I'm just saying it needs more balance. Mm. Mm. It needs balance about what you research, which has to be aligned to the needs of people, which is comorbidity. And secondly, it requires... Uh, a greater balance between the money given to research and what you put into implementation because, you know, we're into plan, do, study, act, not plan, do, study, publish. I suppose that's always going to be a tension in the healthcare system and you you do pick this up in your article. Doctors have to hyper-specialise to be, you know, at the cutting edge of cardiology or whatever it is. And yet there is a, a much more multidisciplinary need to provide good patient-centred care. Now, in the States, they are encouraging the growth of hospital generalists. Do you think that's an important innovation and one that we should be trying to replicate over here in the UK? Well, we already have them. We call them geriatricians. And uh, the uh, evidence coming out of things like comprehensive geriatric assessments is really um, very positive, and uh, what we 
don't yet have is then plugged into a much greater multidisciplinary way of working within a hospital system. So I don't think we need to recreate a role, but we do need to give more prominence to the people who are able to take that overview uh, of people. And I think we have that that body already existing Hmm. um, uh, within the system. So then do you see, you know, the sort of ideal reform would come out of the work of of people like our geriatricians, uh, clinicians who are, you know, see the system from the inside. Well, your your, your question uh, before was about should we have hospital generalists uh, as geriatricians in the community? You mm. need uh, other sorts of generalists. We have general practitioners yeah. uh, and others, and and none of this is to deny the reason or the necessity of having specialist knowledge. But instead of having a COPD team and a diabetes team and a heart failure team, when only 14% of people with diabetes have just diabetes, when only 19% of people with COPD have just COPD, uh, I talk about pooling that expertise for the bespoke needs of an individual. Uh, And that means people have to reframe their thinking and reframe how they work and operate with each other, not in silos, but collaboratively. I have no doubt whatsoever that my article will not make that change. (laughs) But we have to start that debate, not least because the country cannot afford for the healthcare system to continue to work in the silos it does. So if your article, you know, won't make that change, what do you think would make that change? How do you, how do we actually... Oh, I think, I, th- I hope that it sparks a, a debate and from the emails I've already got, it clearly has done that. Uh, I go back to the statistic that I mentioned earlier, 70% of cost and activity in the system are people with multiple con- long-term conditions and frailty. Yet the whole of the system is engineered around a medical model which doesn't match that. It's a moral obligation, in my view, that all the professions really look at themselves hard as to how they can reconfigure the way they operate. I'm not talking about new teams. I'm not talking about new people. I'm talking about the same people working fundamentally different by recognizing the holistic needs of the people who we serve. Mm. Is there space, though, within our NHS for people to be able to do that at the moment? Or is that something that's going to have to come down the line, perhaps with the loosening of the reins from from the Department of Health or NHS England or whoever is going to be nominally in charge at that time? Well, I think it's uh, going to be a combination of signals centrally and enablement uh, locally. Um, I think that the last thing the health and care system need right now is yet another structural reform. I'm not even sure it would survive <laughs> another structural reform. Uh, so I, there are already examples. Um, the winner of the Health Service General Award from Cornwall uh, last week, yeah. that's what's happening in Leeds, where people are getting together, what's happening in Manchester, where people are getting together, in South End, a number of Devon, a number of places. Uh, people are working within existing arrangements to create these mechanisms. It is not necessarily um, a set of uh, uh, structural change, when in fact it definitely isn't a set of structural change you need to make. It's more about how you uh, amend people's mindsets to get to that point. Mm. So it's changed uh, from within. There are some crucial things, such as, for example, 
uh, I'm already on record of saying that payment by results is an inappropriate tariff mechanism for these people. And I created, before I left my previous job, a thing called the Year of Care Capitation Tariff, where you have an annualized amount for everything that happens for people with multiple long-term conditions taking the top 10% of the at-risk population. So there are things like that where you can start to uh, make the system work more in favor, in that favor. But ultimately, it's about people thinking through and having a plan as to how they can start to work together better. Sir John mentioned research and the research agenda there, lamenting the lack of patient centricity. But at the UK's National Institute of Health Research, who fund a great deal of the projects in the UK, they've been trying to put patients at the heart of everything they do. At the BMJ, we're dedicated to doing the same, so we asked Tom Kenny, Director of External Relation at the NIHR's Evaluation Trials and Services Coordinating Centre, to come in to explain to us how they do that. Tessa Richards, who's leading the charge for the BMJ, and I quizzed him. Patient engagement in their own care is a big thing for the NHS at the moment with proms and with friends and family tests and things like that. Um, But the idea of it being in research, I think lots of people are unaware that that goes on and that it's been going on for a while. So what's the NIHR been doing about getting patients involved in the kind of research that you fund? Um, So we have a a long history of a principle of ensuring that patients and the public involve and contribute to every stage of the the journey from the basic idea of research right through its delivery into getting it into publication. Um, And we have that as as a principle that goes far beyond this sort of moral principle that talk about that people talk about saying it's the right thing to do. Um, we do it because we believe not only is it the right thing to do, but it actually fundamentally improves the research that we fund um, and the the outcomes of that research. People might be concerned that you know some patients, especially part of a patient group, might be particularly vociferous about their area and that they would have obviously an agenda to get that funded for research. Does that matter to the NIHR? Could it have an influence? We, we, we accept that um, that, that happens. Um, uh, we like it that people care about the kind of research that gets funded. Um, we have a broad and diverse portfolio um, so that we can take research um, from all different areas Um, And the fact that there's a particular group that are vociferous and care about a particular question being answered, if that question can be shown um, through engagement with other stakeholders to still be an important question, um, then it's worth funding and it's worth us answering. Um, But we wouldn't just take any one group's word on any given piece of research. We're looking for a broad range of stakeholders all to say that this is an important and worthwhile question to answer. Mm. Now, you work uh, partially by putting out calls to yes. ask researchers to come up with you know, um, research that they would uh, then be able to get some funding to do. Um, how are patients involved in that process? Uh, so, so we're generally asking our stakeholders who are not researchers, um, so be that patients, lay members, um, citizens, 
or clinicians, we're asking them about the importance of the topic area, not about whether or not it needs to be a randomized controlled trial or a cohort study or whether it's a factorial design or whether it's a crossover. You know, we, if, if they have the expertise um, or the inclination to comment, um, we will accept their comments, but it's not something we expect from them. We're generally looking to, is this an important area to answer the question in? Um, and then, to a certain extent, we will take their views on the, the study design. To a certain extent, we will try and set the study design. And to a certain extent, we will ask the research community to propose what they think is the most appropriate design. Um, but but that we're generally asking our patients about the importance of the area. Um, I wonder if you could give us a feel for how involving patients changes the research agenda. Uh, an example would be around um, neonatal postmortem, uh, an area that um, we look at and we realise that there's not a huge amount of evidence about what is the best way to do it and to gather the, the information that's necessary to move forward care of, of other patients. Um, and when we took that to, to patients and lay members, they, are, they really championed its importance in a way that we wouldn't have felt able to do. But they also pointed out the, the real need for some qualitative research to run alongside any um, diagnostic test accuracy um, research to fully identify how to engage um, potential future parents in allowing minimal um, tissue sampling um, uh, up to and including a full post-mortem yeah. and so they really championed that in a way that we probably wouldn't have done so so we see the patient's voice um, changing in lots of subtle ways and in some quite significant ways the kind of research that we fund. The NIHR asks uh, researchers to have a sort of public engagement element um, to their project. So have you got any advice to uh, researchers thinking about doing a new project about how to do that given your experience of, of pulling patients and the public into, into research? So um, our, our advice to researchers is engage with your patient community early in the process. Um, right back in the design of your the, the trial, the design of the literature that will go out to patients, the the methods of doing the research, um, and they, the, where researchers have done that, it shines through in the application um, and makes something that stands out as being important to patients um, and stuff that is much more likely to be funded. Um, because as a, as a funder, we are looking to fund things that are important, that's important to the NHS and where we can see that that's important to patients that shine through in applications. Mm. Um, it's obvious when researchers have designed a proposal and come and got tokenistic engagement, mm. difficult to even call it engagement, with patients at the end. Um, those applications just are not of the same quality. And the last thing I wanted to ask um, is if, you know, as a doctor listening to this with a patient who'd expressed interest in doing this, how do you recruit and, and how can people sort of put themselves forward for that? 
Um, so into the design of trials or into the contribution of... The or into topics. anything. Right. So um, we're, we're always looking for peer reviewers and panel members and board members and we we advertise and on our websites and there's sections where people can click to to, to put in their details and to be involved in it. Um, we would encourage if um, patients and researchers are getting together um, for them to talk about it and get involved with that. There's also um, large uh, services like the research design services which cover uh, geographies within the country where patients can go and they will link them up with studies that are being designed and worked on and they're, they are actively championing patients and seeing the benefit from involving patients in designing studies. Um, the, the clinical trials units which again are actively designing studies and benefit and see the benefits from engaging patients in the design of studies. So those would be the, the simple places I would suggest people went and started. Now, an editorial on bmj.com this week looks at doctors' health, and specifically why those transitional moments that everyone has in their lives may be particularly hard for doctors. Michael Peters is head of the BMA's Doctors for Doctors unit, and I went to his office to find out more. So Michael, could you put some background onto this. What are the main areas of concern that you have about doctors' health? Are there specific areas, mental health or diabetes or whatever it is that are particularly overrepresented? Well, what we've been, what we're focusing on is actually the, there's always been doctors and issues, re um, uh, alcohol, drug abuse, you know, we know that there, but these only represent a small uh, proportion of doctors. What we're concerned about is the doctors who are burning out, who are struggling, who are finding it difficult to cope in increasingly fragmented systems. Mm. Have uh, you seen an increase in people burning out? I think there is an increase in people in doctors burning out and stress, and also working within an environment that it's still very difficult to come out and actually admit that you're under stress. Um, disciplinary procedures either in hospital or outside the hospital from regulatory bodies have been perceived as becoming more harsh and this again adds to the stresses that doctors have to work under in their clinical practice. Mm. Now the conference um, that you run biannually is with um, Canadian Medical Association, the American Medical Association, the British Medical Association. It's an international problem. Is that a similar issue in those other countries, or is that a very NHSE problem, the burnout? Well, it's not. It's not just a, a National Health Service uh, issue. Um, there's uh, work done by the Canadian Medical Association some years ago, uh, showed that a large proportion of doctors were at kind of end stages of burnout. And we also have meetings with European colleagues, and so this goes across Europe. Uh, so I'm sure that this is an international problem, not just uh, a UK-based problem. Mm. Part of the focus around burnout and, and things in this next conference is um, what you call transitions uh, in your editorial that this goes along with. So what are transitions, and why do you think they are important when, you, when it comes to burnout? Well, I think doctors may well be struggling in their day-to-day -day jobs, 
But what we all go through in our lifetimes are important transitions. There'll be the transition, as we say, from being a medical student, being top of the class, and then finding yourself in a sort of mediocre level uh, when you've qualified, idealised expectations about what medicine is going to be like coming into reality. Progressing through life, there'll be issues that uh, women, men will have, re-child care, work-life balance. And often I find being feeling guilty that they're doing neither job well, which leads to frustration. Um, and then moving on through life, you know, we have in Europe the European Working Time Directive, mm. and, and, and that means uh, that people who are appointed to high in the profession, we call them consultants in the, in the UK, uh, will probably have less hands-on experience than the previous generation. Not only that, uh, that they will be looked up to in terms of organisational and management uh, uh, skills, which adds to also to the stress of the job. Following through, you've got issues through retirement, coming up to retirement of doctors in the life of the doctor. So we all have health and ill health issues, mental health, physical health, and doctors are not immune. In fact, one of the big messages I try and get through to doctors when I speak to them is actually you're a human being you will get ill like your patients and there's no avoiding that and to encourage a culture where doctors feel able to actually talk about issues and I'm talking about physical and mental health because there's a lot of evidence that doctors delay coming forward. So you've talked a bit about the sort of personal drivers um, that might uh, have an effect on, on some of these problems but there's institutional ones as well. And from a British NHS point of view, the NHS might be good at supporting people in crisis, but these every day, you know, having to get on with it, it's not very good at. But that certainly resonates with me because uh, a lot of the doctors that we talk to are, are part of victims of the fragmentation of, of, of the, the health service in many ways. In many ways, the health service as we see it now is a totally different one that was a decade or two ago in terms of you know, efficiency and actually delivering, you know, uh, d delivering services. But the price of that is a sense of fragmentation and not belonging that I think a lot of doctors talk about. All this depersonalises the system. And I think it's this depersonalisation and the doctor not being able to relate to their institution, to you know, their team as much as they were able to do previously, that can lead to a sense of isolation. And I think this invulnerable people can be a driver for all sorts of health problems. Mm. And I think you know, part of it is, part of the role again, is about trying to rebuild communities. And you know, we know that if you put somebody who's struggling into a good institution, not talking about hospitals, but even in the general business world, they'll thrive. If you put somebody who has issues themselves into a dysfunctional organisation, then that will exacerbate their problems and it's not good for the organisation either. So I think it's really important, certainly I think internationally, to recognise that doctors have this sense of belonging and vocation and almost to call to that aspect of their work. Mm. Michael, thank you very much for thank taking you. your time to talk to us. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be hearing from the BMJ's Christmas charity, Doctors of the World, who will explain what they do. Join us then. If you've enjoyed this and you want to hear more, our full back catalogue is available on our website, podcast.bmj.com, where you can also find podcasts from all of our specialist journals. So check that out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>